Good to see you all here tonight and those joining with us on the internet. Uh, this evening is the last in our series on the end times. And we have been going through uh, a basic overview of end time theology. We've looked at things like the second coming and the soon coming king. We've looked at things like the rapture and the millennium and the antichrist and Israel uh, in the end times and the great Israel end time revival that will be taking place. And today I'm just finishing something I started last week on Revelation, on Jesus' message to the seven churches of Revelation. Next week, we start a new series, and that new series is also in Revival Times, and the new series is Israel and the Bible. Israel and the Bible, and that will take us right up to Easter. We'll be looking at such things as how did Israel, how is Israel formed as a nation? Where did the Hebrews come from? What about the significance of Abraham, the father of the Jews? We'll be looking at the Jewish festivals, the spring and autumn feasts, what those festivals are and uh, how they are fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. We'll also be looking at modern Israel and the land of Israel and look what the Bible says about the land promised to Israel. Is the land still promised to Israel today or has God finished in his promises that Israel will have its own land. What is the relationship between Israel and the church? We touched on that, didn't we, in the end times. We're going to be having a look at that again. So these are the types of things that we're going to be looking at. So as we come into Easter, we will have a good understanding of what the Bible says about Israel starting next week. But if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 1, and verse 18. I'm going to go over a little bit of the ground we did last week as a refresher, and then we are going to move in to some of the other churches and the message that Christ had for the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. John sees the risen Christ, and when he sees him, he says, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. More. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And last week we began an introduction and we said that the book of Revelation is about the end times but it was also spoken into an immediate context. Very often when you look at prophecy in the Old and New Testament, it has a present context and a future context. And so, although we, we, and we've looked at some of the things in Book of Revelation that speaks about the end of the end times, also Jesus had a message for the churches that were in Asia Minor at that time and what their position was, their present condition, and what was needed to happen. And this is the thing about prophecy. Whenever we study prophecy, it's not all about what happens in the future. It's about what happens in the future and how that affects us today. 
So when we've been looking at the end time subjects, and remember you can look at the whole series on the media, go down to the media page on our kt.org, go down to the uh, place where it says series, press on series, and all the series that we've done will come up for you in an easy way for you to watch. And prophecy is not just about what happens in the future, but about how it affects us today. So in the New Testament, the message that Jesus is coming soon wasn't just, well, soon, whatever, but it was Jesus is coming soon and therefore change needs to take place in our life. When we look at the one world government system that may come, when we look at the Antichrist and all these things, it's meant to change us today. So end time study is not just you know, an optional extra, I wonder what's going to happen in the end times. Not only do we need to be sober and alert, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, ready for the end times so it doesn't catch us asleep, but we also have to make changes in our lives because guess what? Jesus is coming soon, sooner than you think. And so here, Jesus speaks a message to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. And uh, these messages to the churches are significant because we can look at our, our churches and our own personal lives as well, and we can measure ourselves to what Jesus was speaking about to the different churches, where he commends the churches for the good that they've done. We can say, well, hey, that's something that we should aspire to so that Jesus will commend us. But also where he criti- criticizes the churches or points out failings in the churches, we can say to ourselves, wow, do I have that failure operating in my life, my cell group and my church? So Jesus' message to the seven churches in Revelation is very powerful because it's a, it's a bit like a measuring line for us to measure ourselves, ourselves and our churches up again, because up against and make changes when we hear about those things. One of the things that I said last week, won't go too much in in detail, is that what Jesus is looking for in each of these churches is overcoming churches. Overcoming churches. He's looking for overcoming cell groups. He's looking for overcoming individual Christians and overcoming Christian families. And again and again, as we go through, as we've been through some and now others of these churches in Revelation, we have rewards. Jesus says, to him who overcomes, again and again and again, to him who overcomes, to those that overcome, I'll give to eat of the tree of life. To those that overcome, I'll give the crown of life. They shan't be hurt from the second death. To those that overcome, I'll give hidden manner and a new name. To those that overcome, they will rule with me and I'll give them power over the nations. To those that overcome, I'll give them a white garment. To those that overcome, there'll be pillars in the temple of New Jerusalem. To those that overcome, they will sit with me on my throne. To those that overcome, I will... I will the, the, To those that overcome, they shall inherit all things. So this is the overcoming church, which means that this is the church of disciples. Now, in order to get to heaven, you just have to believe. Heaven is a free gift, you know that. It's a free gift. It's God's righteousness given to you as a free gift by faith. So all you need to do to get to heaven is to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and raised from dead and you will be saved full stop. But that's just the beginning of the story, amen? 
God is looking for us to overcome, to put our faith to work, as James says, and to see change in our lives, our churches, and our nations. And so this call to overcome, when Jesus spoke to the churches, each one of them was, come on, overcome. Don't stay in weakness. Don't stay where you are. Overcome. If there's mountains of opposition against you, don't just stay at the bottom of the mountain. Overcome that mountain. Overcome that problem. Overcome that thing which is holding you back. One of the greatest dangers in our Christian lives and our church lives is that we don't overcome. We cease to overcome. Rather, we are overcome ourselves. And that's one of the biggest dangers in our lives, that we end up being put out of action by the enemy. Put out of action by the enemy. Or we just stop overcoming. We just sit back and drift through life and we think, well, you know... uh, Shall I win someone to the Lord? Shall I grow a cell group? Shall I? Oh, I don't know. I'm all right doing as, as I. I'll just drift through life. Talk about the end times and stuff. I'll just drift through life. Jesus is wanting to, to overcome. And there are things in your life today, our cell groups today, if you're a member of a cell group, and our church, Kensington Temple today, and the churches of London all together today, and the church of Great Britain, there are things at every different level God is saying overcome. You can't be more than an overcomer if you've got nothing to, to overcome. You can't be more than a conqueror if there's nothing to conquer. So don't be surprised when there are trials or things that God wants you to rise to. It's all part of his plan. The major message to these churches by Christ was, believe me, put faith into action and overcome. Don't just sit down and let it happen to you. Rise up in faith and become an overcoming church. And so we began to look at Ephesus, and there we are in chapter 2, Ephesus, and, um, and the big thing about Ephesus, we looked at this last week, so I'm just going through uh, uh, the ones we did last week a little bit, and then move on to the ones we haven't got to. The big thing about Ephesus is that, if you look in chapter 2, is that they had labor, they had endurance, they worked hard, they couldn't bear evil doctrine, and they tested who were the apostles. They didn't just believe any old preaching, they put it to the test of the word. And they, have, and they endured, they persevered, and they didn't become weary, they didn't give up. So there's some good things for us to think about our lives that were strong in doctrine, that we didn't grow weary, that we worked for the Lord. But in verse 4, As I mentioned last week, he said, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And that was a major thing, because they were doing all of these works, but they'd forgotten that it was all about Christ. They were church workers, church planters perhaps, they were doing everything, and they were so involved in in working for the church that they forgot that their first mission was to adore and worship Christ. That was the first thing that they were to do. And that was, that was not just an option. Because you might say, well, what a great church, doing so much, persevering, strong in doctrine, going out, doing the job. But Jesus wasn't, in, well, 
he was, he was a little bit impressed, but to him he said, look, that's not what it's about. You've got it the all, all the wrong way around. Um, it's not about working for me, it's about worshipping me and out of that ministering for me. And so he says to them, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, uh, repent and do not repent and do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He was here in ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes. Again and again in these in these uh, uh, speeches from of Jesus to the churches he says he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit is saying. So it's, it is one thing to hear the message, but are you hearing the spirit behind the message? That's what, that's what he's saying. Then he moved on in verse 8 to the church of Smyrna. And this church was a, in a very rich and beautiful place. And it was a center of emperor worship. And they had undergone great tri- tribulation and poverty. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And what Jesus was saying was, you're rich spiritually. Contrary to popular prosperity teaching, spiritual riches are far more important than natural riches. And he says, and he says to them, verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. And so Jesus' message to this church in Smyrna was this. Do not fear. Do not fear. In fact, he said in verse 8, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. He's saying, do you know what? I don't even want you to fear death. Because I've been there before you. I've conquered death. And so could it be that God's word to you is do not fear. This morning when I was speaking at the 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service, I was speaking on Paul when he said in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the problem was is that some people were ashamed of the gospel. In other words, they, they didn't think that the gospel was powerful enough to share. They were concerned that they would look bad or be rejected. They were fearful. Even Timothy was fearful of sharing the gospel. And Jesus was saying, you have to overcome that fear. You have to face it. The only way to deal with the fear is to face it. Do you know that? A fear won't go away. You have to face it. Especially if it's a fear of something that God wants you to do. You can walk around hoping that what you fear is going to go away or you can run away from your fears or ignore your fears. But sooner or later you've got to face it. And do you know what? Fear is a lie of the enemy. Fear is a lie of the enemy. Because when you face your fear in God, it's never as powerful as you thought. Isn't that right? Times in your life you've had to step up to the plate. Times in your life you've had to do something in life where you've, just, you've tried to avoid it. Or you've hoped it wouldn't come. That meeting, that confrontation, whatever it might be. That, that, that thing and you think, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And then, you, you, then God puts you in a place where you have to face it. And actually, well, that wasn't so bad. Fear is terrible because it keeps you in bondage. And, and 99 points... 9% of fear is fear of something that will never happen. Never happen. 
and God is with you. And so this could be the message to you, that you step out of your fear, you overcome your fear and the things that are holding you back so that you can enjoy a better experience of life. And then he says in verse 12, we go to Pergamos, to the angel of Pergamos. Now, in the, in the next th- three um, churches, Pergamos, Thyatira, and Sardis, we have something that is common to them all. And it's one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life or church life. It is compromise. Compromise is one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life. Compromise. Or whatever level of Christianity you're at, leaders that compromise. Churches that compromise. Christians that compromise the truths of God. And so keep that in your mind as we go through them. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has a two-edged sword. I know your works where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days that Antipas, who was my faithful martyr, was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give. And so we see that although they had some strong points, they had compromised. Now, I won't go into detail into this, but Jesus is referring to Balaam. Do you remember Balaam? And if you're making notes or you haven't a clue who Balaam is, you can turn to Numbers chapter 22. And Numbers 22 Chapters 22, 23, and 24 tell the story of, of Balaam and what Balaam did. And what we find in that story is that Balaam and Balak, Balaam told Balak to curse Israel and he wanted to give him money to curse Israel. But each time he tried to curse Israel, God intervened and said, don't do it. And each time he went to curse Israel, he ended up blessing. But in the end, he compromised what God had told him to do. He compromised the word of God and the delivery of God and the truth of God. And then what happened when you read the story is not only did he compromise God's word, but he also ended up compromising God's people. And out of his compromised word, the people of God married Moabite women. And at the time, that was not God's will because to marry a Moabite wasn't just somebody from a different culture, but what was happening and what continually happened in those days is that when they took foreign wives, they took their foreign gods too. And that was the problem, not marrying someone from another culture because people from other cultures could become Jewish. But what was happening was the Jewish people were taking wives and letting them bring their culture. And this was a product of Balaam and Balak's work against Israel. So compromise, let idolatry in. And what Jesus is saying is, is that you have compromise. 
The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is the very thing that we're talking about. It's a doctrine of compromise. Indifference and toleration of false doctrine. And in our lives, the question is, what about us? Have we compromised in the story of Balaam and Balak? Have we compromised the application of God's word into our lives? Have we compromised? Have we made room for idols in our lives? Have we made room? Have we compromised with the standards of the world and let some of the standards of the world become our standards? Have we mixed our faith? Have we taken our faith and mixed it with worldly truths and worldly beliefs? Beliefs. There are many Christians that have, have done that. They've got one foot in the, in the camp of the Lord and one foot in the camp of the enemy. And they are tolerating things that they should never tolerate. The question that Jesus is saying to us is, what are we tolerating right now that we shouldn't be tolerating? What are we tolerating in our lives? What are we tolerating in our churches? What are we just letting go? You know, one of the keys of leadership is to know when it's time no longer to tolerate. You can be patient. And, and Jesus says patience is a great thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But there comes a time when you have to, by the discernment of the Spirit, say, I can't allow this, can't tolerate this. Because certain toleration of certain sins and doctrines, the New Testament calls it leaven. Remember that? Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. He also spoke of the leaven of Herod, which was worldliness. And so the New Testament speaks about leaven. Leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of, of, of Herod. Uh, the Galatians, they had a leaven of legalism. The Corinthians, they had a leaven of carnality. You say, well, what's leaven? Leaven is just yeast. And the thing about yeast is you only need a very, very tiny bit. And then you put it in the dough, this tiny, almost invisible yeast, just in the whole dough. And when you put the dough in to bake, then what happens is the yeast spreads right through the whole bread and makes it rise, which is good naturally for bread. But sin can be like this. False doctrine can be like this. If it's tolerated, it becomes leaven. And it doesn't just stay where it is. You know, someone's, someone's got a, a false doctrine or is teaching a false doctrine, and you say, well, it's just their peculiar view. But they get into a place of leadership. They're not going to keep that to themselves. They're going to spread it. Or their sexual immorality. You think that, oh, well, that's just one person that's involved in sexual immorality. But these things are not just social spreading of sins, but they're also spiritual as well. So what you will often find is where sexual immorality gets hold of a local church, it's often not just one particular person. Sometimes there can just be one particular person and it's nipped in the bud. But often it, it, you, you can find a wasp's nest. Often when, when, when the leadership finds out or, you, or leadership is not strong on these issues, then what can happen is it spreads and then it's like it's been tolerated at certain levels of leadership or certain levels of individuals, and then when you lift, when you when you find out, when you lift it up, it's like a hornet's nest, and that thing has spread, and it's spread from, and it's like, you think it's just one person, but then there's another person that's linked to another person that links to another person, and so this is very important. What Jesus is saying 
that we need to be wise in our leadership and our understanding of when to be patient with people, but when to say we can't tolerate this because it's going to spread. Do you hear what I'm saying? And that's at a leadership level. But in our own personal lives, what you tolerate will dominate you. What you tolerate that should not be tolerated in your life will dominate you. There's no such thing as a pet sin. Do you know what I mean by a pet sin? Usually when we talk about a pet sin, it's somebody that says, well, I've got a little sin here and uh, it's my pet sin. Well, you wouldn't say it, but that's what you're saying. You know, like a little pet, like a little pet cat or a little pet dog, it's your little pet. It's harmless little pet, and I'm petting my pet, and I love my pet. I'm taking my pet and looking after my pet, and this, this pet is just a lovely little pet, and, it, and it's no harm, it's a harmless thing. But you don't realize that what you think is a, a lovely little puppy is actually a viper with poison in its fangs. Because that's what sin does. Sin destroys. It comes and promises much, and then if you tolerate it, it destroys you. And so what you tolerate is what will dominate you. This doesn't mean that you have to be perfect in sanctification. No one is. But you have to be moving in the right direction. This is why cell groups are so important. Because when you get in a cell group, it doesn't happen immediately. You have, you know, you have to make friends and, 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 and feel you're in a position where you can trust people. You, don't, you guard your heart. You just open it to anybody. But in a cell group, you get after a while to get to know people. And everybody together is going forward, which means that you can have help where you struggle with difficulties in your life. And we all struggle with difficulties in your life. And that's not wrong. It's just the question is, are we moving forward or backwards? So I'm not saying that, that you have to be absolutely perfect. If not, you're in big trouble. What I am saying is, are you moving forward in your Christian discipleship? Are you looking for help? Are you beginning and, uh, and dealing with these issues? Are the issues getting weaker rather than stronger? That's the key. Are these pet sins being chipped away and dealt with? Or are they becoming stronger and turning into strongholds? Because if you're not dealing with these things or looking for help, this is why the encounters are so important. Because you can have such terrific encounters on a weekend away. And uh, everybody should go on an encounter at least once a year. And the encounter weekends of all different types, actually are one of my favorite weekends, one of my favorite things is to go on an encounter. Because you get to meet people you don't normally get to meet. Um, you know, in the church over a weekend and you spend time with them and that's wonderful in itself, they're just a fellowship. But also you see incredible change within a couple of days because we have made the effort to go away to meet with God for a weekend. And you know, most Christians would never do that. Most Christians would never go away for the weekend just to meet with God. And you say, is that right? Yeah, of course it's right. You know, some people, they go on a church weekend once every three or four years, if that. But most people would never go away for the weekend. Why? They're too busy. But those that go on an encounter weekend, tremendous change takes place. Every time, because you're hungry enough to go away and meet with God. And those breakthroughs there, I mean, it's not the end of the story. You get your breakthrough on the encounter, and that gives you that breakthrough that you can then consolidate as you move forward. And so Jesus was saying to to this church of uh, Pergamos, that although it was faithful in many areas, it allowed compromise and toleration, and it had to be dealt with. When we move on 
to uh, uh, Thyatira in verse 18 of chapter 2. We see a similar thing. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat the things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her in great tribulation lest they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and the churches shall know that I am he that searches the minds and hearts and I will give each one to you according to your works. Now I say to you and the rest in Thyatira, as many who do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, uh, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have heard till I come. So this is a similar thing that I've been speaking about Thyatira. And you, here you have somebody that Jesus is referring to as a Jezebel spirit. Our senior minister Colin has written an excellent book on the Jezebel spirit and the manifestation of the traits of Jezebel that can take place in, in every area of life, including the church. And again, what had happened is they had tolerated it. They, 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 they were not prepared for godly confrontation. They just hoped that the thing would go away or they were intimidated by it. And it's interesting in verse 21 that Jesus actually gave time for this to be sorted out. He actually, this person was involved in sexual immorality or sexual immorality was being taken and Jesus did not act immediately. Thank God for the mercy and grace of God. He was given time for people to sort themselves out. He was given them time and his graciousness and his time. But there comes a time when the Lord says enough's enough. I've given you time. I've been patient with you, but you've not repented and then what, did he, what does he do? He comes to judge them right where they are. Right where they are. He comes to judge them. And so we see that, that this type of sexual sin, God just doesn't leave alone. And if you're involved in serious sexual sin, like adultery or fornication, and you're saying to yourself, well, nothing's happened to me. Well, don't, don't, don't play with the grace of God. Stop it now. Just stop it now. Cut it off right now. And the grace of God will take you forward. Because if you don't, your time will come when God will sort you out on the earth. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but I tell you what, forget about that because you'll be so concerned because things will happen. Sickness happened here. Tribulation will happen. Because you see, when you mess with sin, God will sometimes give you space in order to repent because he's gracious but in the end sin will bring its own judgment it's not that God's judgment it's sin itself works and the wages of um, sin is what? death so in the end unless you deal with these sins in the end there's a payday there's a payday it's like sin comes and says right you've been doing me doing with me for in, the, in this serious thing for so long and um, 
you've had your fun, but now I'm having my fun. That's what sin says. I'm seeing things getting wrecked, getting destroyed, and now it's payday. I want my wages. And the wages of sin is destruction and ultimately death. It's a strong word, this, but it's a word of saving, healing, sanctifying power that Jesus is giving. He's saying these things because he understands how bad sin is and he wants us to be free from those things. The angel of Sardis in chapter 3. Now, this is, a, now, this is slightly different. To the angel of Sardis, these things, he who has the spirit, seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive but are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God or mature before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I have come. You have a few names, um, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And so here's... A church that had a reputation of being alive but was actually dead. This is one of the most scariest things for anybody that is in leadership in church life. That you're a leader in a church that has a reputation. Do you know you can live off your reputation for a long time? Do you know that? You can, you can be a church like Samson that wist not that the Holy Ghost had left them. And people can talk about a ministry or talk about a church. And that church can be dead. But because of where it is, its fame, it can still roll on for quite a long time, looking, giving the appearance of being alive, giving the appearance of being radical, radical for Christ, because they know the words that they should say that give an appearance of radical. They know how to preach the sermons that make or give them appearance of that. And it's the same with individual Christians, that sometimes we can give an appearance of being alive, but really... Where it matters, where your Christian life really matters is not how you portray yourself to people, but what happens in the secret place. And one of the major messages of the Sermon on the Mount is this. Your Father in heaven's not interested in how you portray yourself to others. He, he's not interested how you portray your giving. Look at me, here's another check. Here's another check for the church that you see all. He's not interested in your public giving. He's not interested in your public praying in your cell groups. And Oh, wow, you don't want us a strong prayer. God's not interested in how you appear to pray. He's not interested in that. He's interested in what happens when you shut the door where nobody sees. He's interested in the giving that nobody knows about. He's interested in the deeds that nobody... God gives you spiritual credit for the, for the things you are away from the public gaze. That, that's where it matters. So just because everybody speaks to you and, and, and you've got, and it's like you've got these people around you and they all think you're a wonderful Christian and you take courage that everybody likes me or I'm, I'm in a great church or I'm in a great cell group and everything. God's saying, well, that's all very nice, but I see you where nobody sees you and that's where, that is the level that you are at. That's the level to God. So uh, that, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? But it's a good thought too, because God wants us to work on our lives outside what we show others, because that's what true spirituality is all about and tells them to, to overcome. And then the angel of Philadelphia in verse 7 of chapter 3, these things... Uh, 
He who is holy, he is true, he who is the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and not denied my name. Indeed, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but are not, but lie. Indeed, I'll make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. Because you've kept my commandments to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell. Behold, I am coming quickly. Moving on. Then uh, finally, the Laodiceans in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, these things the, uh, says the amen, the faithful and true witness in the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works and that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And so here is a church or a situation where people are blind to their own spiritual state. They think they're rich. They think they're champions. They think that, they think that, that they're blessed, but they're not because they are, and, and, and this, is the, this is the falsehood of the extreme prosperity message. People go around talking about their jets and their suits and everything like that. I'm not interested in jets and suits. I'm interested in souls and cells. You know, if you have a jet and a suit, fine, shut up about it. I'm not interested. Not interested. You know, you've got a jet, you've got a, you've got a lot of money. Well, you know, James says you better be careful. <laughs> James says you're rich and you've got these things. You better humble yourself. You know what I'm saying? Because it's the poor person that needs the faith to get the meal on the table every day. So don't tell me you're a man of faith just because you got an airplane. Big deal, whoopee doo. What about the woman who's a single parent that has to get food on the table and prays it in? That's more impressive. That's greater faith. And so here, and we believe in prosperity. We believe that God, we believe in prosperity and we preach prosperity here. We believe that God gives us an abundance for his work. And we, we're blessed with the overflow. But we're not addicted to it. These people were. And they thought they were kings of the world. But they didn't know they were wretched, miserable, poor, and naked. He said, buy from me gold refined in the fire. And what that means is walk in faith. Gold is always related to faith in the New Testament. Gold. But that gold is refined. And so these people, instead of living in their rich castles and not doing anything for the Lord, and talking about how wonderful they were at all their conferences, and living in hotels, and, and just having a, having a big self-indulgent party, and not going through anything, Jesus is saying, why don't you walk the crucified path? Why don't you become my disciple and give up, give up everything and follow me? And then, as you do that, why don't you preach the gospel and make disciples? Then what will happen? is your faith will be strengthened. It will be purified. When you walk and carry your cross and follow me, then what begins to happen is the gold of your faith 
begins to be purified and strengthened. And so he's saying, pray that you will see yourself as you really are. In grace, but also soberly. Soberly. And God says this wonderful thing. On this I close. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, we hear words from the Lord. Have you ever had a word from the Lord? Has God ever given you a word from your scripture reading and God's spoken to you? Well, often when you speak to charismatic Christians and they talk and, and you know them and, oh, God gave me a word or God spoke to me, 99.9999% of the time, it's always something about something wonderful that's going to happen well, or how he's going to lead you through the trial. Well, you should be, you should be disturbed because God says, the ones I love, I give them the hard word. Have you ever had a hard word from the Lord? Have you ever had a rebuke from the word of God or from, from, from a, a sermon? I have. I remember a word God gave me. And it was just one word. And it cut me to the bone. I thought, oh my God. Oh my God. And was I condemned? No. No, I wasn't condemned. I thought, this, this is love. But it cut right to the heart of things one word and it was a rebuke from God did it make me sorrowful yeah it made me sorrowful but it made me feel loved at the same time thank you father for telling me those words and I was pleased if I, I don't mean I was pleased that I was be able to take it in the manner it was given because there's some people you can't rebuke they're not open to rebuke there's people that you meet and you know, you know that if, if you could rebuke them, if you could speak a word into their lives, not for the sake of it, but for their good, all right, with the right motivation, if you could actually speak a rebuke to them, if you could actually put your finger on that which you see and it's not you wanting to have a go at them, it really is for their benefit, it would help them enormously. But you look at them and you think there's just no way I can do it because they won't receive it. They're too immature to receive a rebuke. You don't have to be mature to receive a blessing. But sometimes the greatest blessing is a rebuke. And the question is, are we open to take that rebuke? Because sometimes God won't even rebuke us because he says, you're too much of a baby. If I gave this to you, you'll crumble. God doesn't love me anymore. I'm not saved. I'm not saved. God doesn't love me anymore. When in fact, it's the very expression of God's love. He's saying, man up, grow up. Come on. I'm here to help. We can talk about these things. I can speak a word into your life and you won't crumble. But on the contrary, even though it makes you sorrow, you know that it's healthy medicine for your life. So next week, we're going to come back and we're going to start a new series. We're going to go through the series right up till Easter. And we're going to find out what the Bible says about the nation of Israel. God bless you all.